One of the most well-known instances of sustainable thinking emerged in Renaissance Florence, when the ruling Medici family worked to remake their city into the beautiful piece of civic architecture it is today. They built cathedrals, palaces, public squares, commissioned great works of art, libraries, sponsored scientific ideas, and revolutionized the world they lived in. They were patrons to Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Machiavelli, and Galileo, among other individuals who have shaped the way we think and live today. Crucially, the Medici did not want to build only one or two nice buildings for themselves and their wealthy friends. They wanted to create a beautiful and progressive city for everyone. They invested in the future. So who are today's Medici? I'm Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Picta Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Today we discuss impact investing. We humans are not sustainable by nature. We collapse and dissolve all too soon. It's because life is so desperately brief for all of us that a capacity to think and act sustainably is so daunting to think about. But when we can pull it off, it's truly impressive. Daily subject to short-term appetites, we must identify and invest in projects that will exist way beyond ourselves. Joining us today are Sir Ronald Cohen, Egyptian-born British businessman and philanthropist, who has been called the father of venture capital and now impact investing, and Rosa San Giorgio, who leads the environmental, social, and governance effort for Big Day Wealth Management. Welcome, Sir Ronald Cohen. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us. The pleasure is uh, mine, Rosa. Wonderful to be here with you and everyone in the Big Day community. Thank you. So, Ronald, I would like to start our conversation by exploring your early days before going into impact investing and the future that we are looking at. You arrived in Britain when you were 11 as a refugee from Egypt. You did not speak English at the time, yet within 10 years, you had won a scholarship for the Oxford University and actually were already president of the Oxford Union. How did this extraordinary experience mark your journey your values, your sense of purpose? So, Rosa, my parents, when we arrived with nothing, presented it all as a wonderful challenge. Uh, I went to visit the headmaster of what uh, became the state school to which I, I went with my dad. And uh, I couldn't speak English. And my dad said to the headmaster, look, if you trust me and accept him, I promise you he will be top of the class. It gave me a sense of obligation not to let my dad down. And so my life up until I got to Oxford was one of rising to that challenge. And for my luck, I met an inspired teacher, Richard Farley, a teacher of history, one of the most widely read people I have ever met, who took me under his wing and said to me, Cohen, you should go to Oxford. And he prepared me for the exams, and, and I got in, as you said. 
And I felt that I had been helped and that I wanted to help others in my turn. And that's been a, a characteristic of my values, really, all, all the way since then. It's, uh, it's interesting and it's fascinating to see how some hurdles can transform really in, in, in opportunities and give us the chance, you know, to, to achieve our potential. As a young man with a couple of uh, business school colleagues, you founded Apex Partners. We all know Apex Partners is one of the first British and European venture capital firms. I'm interested to know how did you discover this, that at the time was obviously an emerging field, which goals you have at the time, and where did the energy come from to, to go into that field? So I, I found myself by luck at Harvard Business School uh, when I was just 22, because the business school was experimenting with taking younger uh, students who hadn't had business experience. And I arrived just at the time when venture capital and entrepreneurship and technology were becoming barely visible. And I heard a professor called General Dorio, an unlikely figure to become one of the world's first venture capitalists, talk about his investing in a small company called Digital Equipment, which had grown very fast, And his $70,000 investment was going to be worth $100 million. And I, you know, I stopped and gasped and said, gosh, this is the future. Entrepreneurship, innovation by young companies, small is beautiful, was a completely new idea. But it seemed logical to me that ambitious young people without the constraints of legacy organizations and, uh, and, and infrastructures would innovate better than the elephants who were dominating their particular areas of, uh, of each uh, of our industry forests. And so I decided to go into this field and for my luck, it turned out to be right. What I sensed uh, was in the air uh, did in fact materialize. And of course, the history of venture capital, how it funded entrepreneurship, technology, and, uh, and so on is there for everyone uh, to see now. You could say, as I mentioned in my book, Impact, you could say that um, this uh, period was uh, really the birth of uh, the technology revolution. And then 30 years uh, pass, uh, you provided capital to more than 500 startups and decided to retire from Apex, apparently to use your competence and drive to tackle social issues. So which were the social issues that you were seeing as um, a venture capitalist, as an investor, and were not able to tackle through the traditional venture capital system? So, Rosa, I was a child of the 60s, uh, flower power, the campaign uh, against nuclear or the campaign for nuclear disarmament uh, more specifically. And when I went into venture capital, I sensed that I was doing something that was socially useful. I was helping to create jobs at the time when Britain had millions of people unemployed. And I needed to make money because I knew that my parents Uh, would need my help in their retirement. So I found that venture capital was a way for me to do good and to do well in the words that we've become 
familiar uh, uh, with using in, in the impact field. But I realized as the years went by that although I had given backing to people who came from modest backgrounds and made a lot of money and enriched the people in their, in their firms and their communities, the gap between rich and poor was just getting bigger and bigger, which isn't what I had expected. And so when in 2000, when I was still leading Apex, I got a phone call from the British Treasury to look at the issue of poverty with a more entrepreneurial eye, I immediately said yes. And that set me on the path to impact investment. And uh, that path has led us today to the path of impact economies, which I describe in my book. And in in your book, you write uh, a sentence that actually uh, I find it uh, really, really interesting and, uh, and says a lot. You say that capitalism is not answering to the need of our planet. Is impact investing the way to address those needs? And what is impact investing? So, Rosa, we can all see that capitalism, which has helped us to take billions of people out of poverty and to increase the general level of prosperity, today creates such negative consequences that even governments can't cope with them. We can see the climatic consequences, which are massive, and we can see the social consequences of uh, underpay, lack of diversity, uh, differences in uh, gender equity, and so on and so forth. And so something has to change in our system to bring companies and investors to deliver profit but also positive impact on people and planet. And my thesis is that the world has actually been moving in the direction of adding impact to risk and return. And if you think that the new economic paradigm is risk-return impact, it begins to explain a lot of what we see between us. It explains the 30 trillion plus of ESG, environmental, social and governance investment, that's taking place today. I see figures today, Rosa, that you gave us 2018 figures. I see figures today of 40 to 70 trillion dollars that take impact into account when making decisions. The impact investment space proper, where you have the same intention as ESG, to minimize negative impact and create positive impact in the case of impact investment, as you were saying, it's uh, focused almost entirely on bringing solutions, creating positive impact, but both have an intention to improve impact. But impact investment is defined as measuring the impact created. And ESG, because it doesn't measure it, doesn't deliver the impact that it could deliver. And so if you begin to think of turning ESG into impact investment by bringing measurement to it, which is something that I'm very involved in in doing and the whole world has cottoned on uh, to the need to measure impact in a transparent, consistent way, then you realize that the world in shifting to this risk-return impact paradigm 
is now tackling the issue of measuring the impacts of companies in a similar way to measuring their profit. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, someone says you can't manage what you don't measure. So it's, uh, it's extremely important to measure. And uh, it's extremely important also to remember that all companies, all investments make an impact. It can be a negative or a positive impact. If we don't measure, we don't know. And once we start measuring, obviously, we will go into the direction of wanting to increase the positive. So um, in your last answer, you mentioned that we need to have positive impact and returns. And this is extremely important because uh, this is at the base of the sustainability of impact investing, having positive social and environmental impact and competitive financial returns. Unfortunately, there are still some skeptics that believe that there is a trade-off between financial and social return. What would you tell to those skeptics? I believe, Rosa, as an investor, that optimizing risk-return impact actually delivers better returns financially than optimizing risk-return. And the reason is uh, twofold. On the risk side, if you avoid the risk of regulation and of taxation because you're creating pollution or creating social issues, then, you know, that obviously is an, an improvement in your risk profile. But also on the return side, when you begin to look at uh, business opportunities or investment opportunities through an impact lens as well as a profit and a risk lens, you discover new opportunities which are much greater uh, than those you would have discovered had you only looked at risk return. I'd like to give you an example of that which I cover in the book. Here in Israel, from from where I speak today in Tel Aviv, there's a company called Orcam. And Orcam developed a pair of spectacles for the blind. What does that mean? The wearer puts on spectacles with a little memory stick-like device on the side which whispers into the ear of the listener the page of the book they're reading or the banknote in their hand and even recognizes up to 300 people who have previously uh, been uh, been, uh, registered. Okay, now we would all say, wow, that's a fantastic impact venture. It can benefit the lives of 35 million blind people and 250 million visually impaired people. And indeed, that's absolutely true. But if you look from an impact point of view, you ask yourself the question, how can this technology help the greatest number of people in the planet, on the planet? And the answer isn't an obvious one. The answer is, what if you provided these spectacles to the 800 million illiterate adults in the world? What would that do for their earning power and their livelihoods and for their lives? If you give people the ability to read... What can they do for their countries, for the economic development of of the globe, to bring 800 million people who cannot read to reading? And so all of a sudden, you've defined a 1.1 billion person market. Now, Tesla is an example of this type of thinking. Uh, Elon Musk entered the automobile industry with the objective, not just 
of creating automobiles, but creating automobiles that do not deliver pollution in the way the combustion engine has done. And he has managed to shift the whole of the automobile industry in the direction of this positive impact while creating a company which is worth today five of his competitors put together. So for those two reasons, the reduction of risk and the greater market opportunity that it it brings, risk-return impact, in my view, will deliver better returns than risk-return. In the mid-1970s, an entrepreneur and banker had a revolutionary idea. That credit is a fundamental human right. He began to personally loan money to basket weavers in Bangladesh that were too poor to qualify for traditional bank loans, teaching his clients sound financial principles so they could help themselves. These microcredits, as they're now called, brought thousands of people out of poverty, jumpstarting the economy and hope for a better future. In 2006, Dr. Mohamed Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize. And today, microcredits are a common practice all over the world, creating jobs and encouraging careers in even the most bleak of circumstances. You mentioned Elon Musk. Let's talk about the role of entrepreneurs. In your book, you say that there has never been a better time to start an impact business. Can you give us some examples of those that you see around, those incentives that can support impact businesses today? So I see three major forces coming together today to boost this whole impact investment effort and lead us to impact economies. The first is a change in values, Rosa, which started off with young people not wanting to purchase uh, the products of companies that are creating environmental or social harm or to work for them, uh, and then became uh, apparent to investors who realized the implications for the profitability of the companies in which they invest, and hence the huge ESG flows that we see today. That's one major force. The second is there are huge leaps in technology that enable us today to deliver impact globally in ways humanity could never contemplate. I'm thinking of artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, computing and the genome coming together, and so on. And the third is this technology enabling us through the use of big data to measure the impacts of individual companies and to monetize these impacts so that you can look at a company in terms of its profits, but also in terms of its operational impact, its employment impact, and its product impact on people and planet. These three forces create massive opportunities. Now, you can see it most uh, obviously today in the area of clean energy. So clean energy ETFs and, 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 and individual venture capital or private equity investments and in them have been characterized by a market going like this at the time when fossil fuel investment has gone like that, right? So you can see it in evidence in 
in the energy field. You can see it in fintech, where you have new types of platforms that are beginning to disrupt uh, the business of, uh, of, of banking and, uh, and finance. You can see it in the business of remote education, of remote health. You can see it in the area of, uh, of transport. You can see it in every area. And that's why I say that this impact revolution is similar to its precursor, the tech uh, revolution. The impact revolution is going to disrupt investment portfolios because it's going to disrupt the business models of companies in as uh, significant a way as technology um, did uh, before them. And if companies refuse to see this huge trend to impact, this mega trend, they will be left behind just like the companies that refused to believe that technology would affect more than the computer industry, that it would affect every area of uh, business activity. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, a parallel between uh, you know, the impact revolution and, and the tech revolution. So the impact uh, revolution could dominate the 21st uh, century as the tech revolution has dominated the 20th century. So according to you, what's the difference between what has happened with tech entrepreneurs and the new generation of impact entrepreneur? So I think the new generation of impact entrepreneurs is attracted to delivering impact as well as profit, doing good and doing well. So they are busy, like Elon Musk, creating business models that can deliver risk, return, and impact. And they understand that adding impact gives you the opportunity to, as I was saying earlier, to uncover huge new opportunities which have previously not been accessed. So what I see now is there's virtually no business plan that comes across my desk from a tech entrepreneur that doesn't have a tech dimension to it. Even if they don't describe it as an impact, forgive me, as an impact dimension, uh, there is always an impact angle. It's just second nature for young people to bring solutions to the big problems we have. Perhaps they have sensed intuitively, as I did in, you know, in the 60s, that the world just cannot go on the way it is. Uh, we have to do things to improve the lives of people and our society and to improve our planet if we want to create the type of world that we want to live in. One of mankind's love affairs with chocolate stretches back to 1847, when an English businessman and social reformer, George Cadbury, took over his father's failing enterprise and built it into a highly prosperous Cadbury Brothers Cocoa business. And with it was born a vision. When working class living conditions were grim, creating a place full of green spaces where industrial workers could thrive away from city pollution was his dream. Only 48 years later, with 140 acres of privately bought land and 143 cottages built, the Burnville factory, Garden Village, came to be. Cadbury became famous for its prosperity and the advances in conditions and social benefits for its workforce, perhaps catalyzing the movement for companies today, like the search engine giant Google, 
who recently built a village office that employs about 20,000 people. We have been talking about uh, um, impact initiatives and uh, entrepreneurs starting new ventures to create a positive impact. What about the transformation of existing activity? Uh, what, what do you think will happen to the world's biggest corporation in this transition to the impact capitalism? Will they slowly disappear? Is change possible? Is conversion to impact possible? So those who see the change and participate in it will thrive, and those that don't will be left behind, exactly as happened with technology. Rosa. And I think what's going to characterize companies in the next few years as this impact transparency comes into being is companies that accept that there is a transition to be had now, both in terms of climate and in terms of um, diversity and equality, gender equality and ethnic equality and so on, and those who don't. And those who do will go to their shareholders' meetings with transition plans, which may well be voted on by shareholders. Uh, and those who don't are going to be under attack uh, from some of their shareholders. So we need around uh, between 30 and 40 trillion in the next 10 years to achieve the sustainable development goals. Um, it's feasible. Will, will we see inequality shrinking, natural resources regenerating? Are you optimist? I am an optimist. I believe that uh, for four decades, the environmental movement has tried to find solutions at the government level. And finally, we're coming to the conclusion the solutions have to be at a corporate level. The pollution is not created by governments. It's created by companies. Similarly, diversity can't be dealt with solely at government level. Government has to provide incentives for companies to improve their diversity, to improve equality between gender and ethnic groups and so on in terms of remuneration. And transparency is the most powerful way to achieve it. Once you bring into, you know, into everyone's uh, ambit the figures about the impacts of companies, you create a race to the top. Companies will strive to improve their impact performance because it improves the value of their company. So we're getting to that now. I hope that governments will be bold enough that the G7 and the G20 will pick up these subjects as um, uh, will the COP26, these subjects of impact, transparency, and integrity, and bring us to the mandatory publication of impact-weighted accounts for companies. My own belief is this will happen within the next three to five years. Thank you, Sir Ronald Cohen, for sharing insights about your personal journey, about the need for impact investing, and how we can do both well and good at the same time. It has been an honor, a pleasure, and extremely inspiring to have you as our guest. Pleasure is mine, Rosa. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Sir Ronald Cohen and Rosa San Giorgio. This series is brought to you by the PICTA Group, 
one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers for this episode were me, Rosario Lebrijarras Batayev, Clara Bertrand, and Vrasili Cristodulu, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.